I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Pop quiz. Which way are we going? North, south, east, or west? Oh, jeez. A couple of weeks ago, my wife Aubrey and I took a trip out west. We were hiking. Are you recording me? I don't know. Yes, you are. Well? Both of us are New Englanders and have spent very little time in western landscapes. And to make things worse, on this day, we were totally socked in. It was snowing and cloudy, and you couldn't see the sun. South is that way. That way? What makes you say that? Because I looked at the map. Okay, so I don't normally ambush Aubrey mid-hike, but I have been thinking about navigating. How did people used to know their way before maps and compasses? Well, point around. Give me some evidence. Well, there's a lot of snow here. Which means it might be the north side of a mountain, which means that south would be that way. This is a good thought, except that only works when the sun has been out for long enough to melt the snow a little bit on south-facing slopes. And right then, the snow was still falling. So, that's not how it works. Oh, the trees. Which way does the wind blow from? Another good idea, except... I don't know. This is my first day here. Which way was the wind blowing earlier? The trees, it looks to me like the wind always blows from that way. So how would, you, how would you normally figure it out? The sunshine. Mm, no sun. No. So what do we do? <laughs> we'll get the map. Hampshire Public Radio, this is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. Today, take a step back and imagine a world without a web of GPS satellites telling your smartphone where you are every second of the day. 
Imagine a world before maps, before compasses, a world which, really, in the grand scheme of human evolution, is where we've been for most of the history of our species. This might sound like a dangerous and scary place, a place where you could get lost and never be seen again, but it's also a world where maybe you'll discover you had a hidden superpower, one that's been inside you all along if you just knew how to turn it on. Like anything, navigation has its superstars. In this case, it's the Polynesians. About 7,000 years ago, out of Southeast Asia, you know, there are people that uh, developed this technology of uh, building a craft that could go over the horizon, you know, into the deeper ocean. And they also developed a system of navigation, you know, to keep track of their travels and to come back home. The islands in the Pacific Ocean were some of the last places on the planet to be settled by humans. And that's because they were just tiny little specks of land in the largest ocean in the world and incredibly hard to find. But the Polynesians did it. You know, we speak about Polynesia, but really these peoples went all the way across the Indian Ocean to Madagascar, through Indonesia, all the way across the Pacific to um, the west coast of both of North and South America. This is Bruce Blankenfeld with the Polynesian Voyaging Society. He's one of a few dozen master navigators, people from the islands in the Pacific who know how to find their way without maps and compasses. Over the course of a few thousand years, the Polynesians used sailing canoes to spread to basically every speck of land in the Pacific Ocean. Oh my gosh. It was like, you know, I mean, anytime you, you go into the unknown, when you, you have no idea what you'll be facing, I mean, that takes, I mean, tremendous risk and tremendous uh, courage just to keep taking those steps. And based on Hawaiian oral history, these were some serious adventurers. One of the first navigators that uh, found Hawaii, his name was Hawaii Loa, he was out, they say, on an extended fishing trip, which is like very extended fishing trip. <laughs> and he was away from home for about three months, I mean, three cycles of the moon. And he located the islands and he sailed through them and then he went back home and then the, then the migration started after that. Hawaii was one of the last islands to be settled by the Polynesians. And for generations, the sailing canoes continued back and forth between Hawaii and the other Polynesian islands. That's a voyage of more than 2,000 miles. But then, for some reason, the voyaging stopped for 600 years. And the skills that these sailors had, the ones that guided them across miles and miles of ocean, they started to atrophy. But then in the 1970s, a hodgepodge of Hawaiian anthropologists and adventurers got this crazy idea to build a replica of a traditional sailing canoe as a way of proving that their ancestors were the expert navigators their stories portrayed. 
Now, if you're picturing a canoe like what you would rent at the local boat launch, this is not what a voyaging canoe looks like. It's really two canoes, each of them 60 feet long with a deck in between them. So it's more like a catamaran, longer than a coach bus, 20 feet wide, and with space for about eight people to sleep head to toe down in the hulls of the boat. They called it the Hokulea. But, it, but it, the, the, the key to it all was having someone who had the knowledge and the skill to navigate. They did find somebody to do that, and that was what made all the difference. On the tiny atoll of Satawal, a place that European colonization had largely skipped over and where local traditions were still intact, the Hawaiians met a man named Mao Piailug, a master navigator who had been taught by his own grandfather. They convinced him to come to Hawaii, hoping he could sail their new canoe from Hawaii to Tahiti. And in 1976, they embarked on their first voyage, with Mao at the helm. So, you know, it's really funny. From Mao's perspective, I believe, is you're not going from, like, point A to point B. You're, like, stationary, and you're pulling the islands towards you. When you first see that first tip of the islands or whatever, I mean, that's what's happening. It's coming out of the sea out of the horizon. The distance between these two island chains is around 2,500 miles. Sailing there directly, when you know exactly where to go, takes around 30 days. The entire archipelago that contains Tahiti is only 450 miles long, so that's basically the target the sailors are trying to hit. I feel like for the first people to make this voyage, it must have been like standing at the edge of a vast desert, not knowing what was on the other side or how big that desert was and thinking, okay, let's do this. So how does this work? How do you find your way using nothing but your wits and the natural world. Let's ask some people who are learning right now. Kaiulani Murphy is an apprentice navigator on the Hokulea, which is still on the water today. <laughs> yeah, basically we use any clues in nature that we can to help us find direction and then know um, when we are getting closer to land. The first tools in her navigating toolbox are, kind of obviously, the sun and the stars. Kalea Wong, another apprentice, says they're the most consistent and predictable guide. Well, there's a list of like 200 stars that Nainoa and our teachers um, use. Uh, we probably use really maybe 100 or so. Um, know exactly where they rise, how they move across the sky, and where they set. But there's a problem with relying on the sun and the stars, which is, what about cloudy days? What happens when you can't see the stars? Um, but then there's the swells, which is the most important to know because you're going to always see the ocean surface. Um, you're not always going to see the stars. So for me, this part is kind of mind-blowing. Out on the ocean, they navigate using the waves. Navigators are up at dawn every day, observing. They take mental notes. Where's the wind coming from? Where are the clouds? What do they look like? 
And then they feel the swells. How are they moving in relation to the course of the ship? How does that make the ship feel beneath your feet? They lock onto that feeling. They try to memorize it. That feeling is their heading. And when it's cloudy, or when the sun is straight up overhead, they navigate by that feeling. So that's why sunrise and sunset super important times of every day because you have a reference point and so you know the direction the swells are coming from based on where that sun is rising. Yeah, and then we keep our course um, with those swells throughout the day. For Mao Piailu, who had learned the art of navigation starting as a child, this wasn't something he could just turn off. Bruce says during that voyage back in 1976, the first time the Hawaiians had sailed to Tahiti, they were amazed to see that Mao hardly slept. But when he did... Mao was so in tune that, yes, when he did go below, uh, when he, you know, needed some rest, even while he was just exhausted and probably sleeping, you know, he could uh, feel the difference and know that they weren't, uh, they were off course. Now, think of your GPS. It isn't just great because it gives you directions, but because it tells you exactly where you are. But on a sailing canoe, there is no blue dot. They've just got the stars. Uh, one of the stars that we use is the North Star. It's, it's directly relational to where you are on, on this Earth. So if you're at the North Pole, the, the North Star is straight overhead. And if you're on the equator, the North Star is, is right on the horizon. We just put our hand out in the sky, and, um, and sometimes it's a finger or two or three or four or whatever it takes to measure the stars um, based off of where we are. Uh, that's going to be different depending on whose hand, though. Like, your hand's got to be... Much smaller, yes. We actually, we <laughs> calibrate our hands individually. So we do know what the measurements are on our hands before we go and measure the stars. So do you know how many degrees you're, you can right, reach? Right. Oh, I'm like 19 degrees, which is not... I can't measure Hokupa, the North Star in Hawaii, completely. But, <laughs> but um, yeah... These navigators stand out on the ocean, holding their hands up to the night sky over and over, night after night. They do it so many times that they know exactly how high off the horizon certain stars should be when they hit the latitude they're aiming for. They know exactly what the sky should look like when they reach home. So... Back in 1976, when the Hokuleo was making its maiden voyage from Hawaii to Tahiti with the navigator Mao Piailug at the helm, this is what he was looking for. As they sailed south, with no blue dot telling them how far along they were, every night he would look up into the sky, and the southern cross would get higher above the horizon, looking more and more like the sky of his home. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. 
My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. (laughs) Join me, Lale Arakoplu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Now, here's something to think about. People who have the skills of someone like Mao Pialuk aren't just using some pre-GPS star chart version of GPS. They actually have a totally different way of seeing the world. Just think about how you get from point to point. As you go, chances are you've got what's called an egocentric orientation. When I get to that brick building on the left, I turn right. Your directions are based on looking for landmarks, signs, and figuring out where they are in space in relation to you. Everybody knows about the stone churns, you know, the piles of rocks. Sticks were used, blazes, mocking trees, even a simple bending of a branch. We know some groups piled up sticks and put them in a direction to say how many people were in their party, which direction they were going upstream or downstream. All these things were little indicators. This is Paul Puglio, Sagamaw, or speaker of the Kawasak, a band of Abenaki who live here in New England and up into Quebec. And here is where Paul's ancestors were different from us. They didn't necessarily have that egocentric orientation. He says they oriented themselves based on where their bodies were in relation to the planet. And he says that navigation is embedded into their language. We followed the sun. We had the same cardinal points, but we were either traveling into the sun, away from the sun, or into the sunset. And we knew things by those directions. So when we said into the sun, we went, Waji Songket it into the sun. If we're going away from the sun, is Ali Nahilo, which is away from the sun. If we're going north, it was Pabanki. And if we're going south, it was Sawanaki. This might seem like kind of an obvious point. I mean, if you go far enough back into the history of the words east and west, they're describing sunrise and sunset too. But there is an important idea embedded here. As we've developed more and more technology, a subtle shift has happened. For example, when I say, look east. Look east. What happens in your brain? Take the exit. Chances are you picture a map. And from there, you extrapolate which way must be east in relation to where you're facing. Um, over there. Now, imagine what it would be like if you had never seen a map. Recalculating. When I say east, that would mean look toward the dawn. Recalculating. The only way you would know where east is is by having actually seen the sun come up over the horizon. There are actually whole languages that don't have words like left and right. Instead, if they're going to warn you of some sort of danger, they might say, hey, watch out for that snake to the north of your foot. And you would just know where that snake was because you just knew. Because you've been paying attention for your whole life to which way was which. You'd never get disoriented. As you start to develop the skills, you gain your this own 
kind of consciousness that you didn't realize you had the capabilities of getting. John Huth is a Harvard professor, a teacher of particle physics. Like most of us, he grew up with maps and compasses, left and right. But he got a scare. He was in a kayak in the Gulf of Maine in open water when a fog bank rolled in, and suddenly he couldn't see anything. He managed to make his way to shore, but the next day he saw on the news that two other paddlers caught in that same fog got lost and died. So he decided to learn how to navigate. At night, um, I can just look up in the sky and without having to name the names of stars or even think about it, I can just um, find my way. Over time with practice, the um, thinking one thing, then another, and another by conscious choice starts to fall away, and you start to do it unconsciously. That's kind of, that, doesn't that, <laughs> sort of strikes me as almost like a superpower. It's like we all had this superpower <laughs> that we've we've given up on. Yeah, I definitely. Um, and it's, it's a little surprising because it's like somebody, I don't know, turned on a light bulb. <laughs> There's all this stuff in front of you that you were not paying attention to. It's, it's hard to describe it. Superpower is the wrong word here. What this is is a sense. It's a sense of direction. It's different. A sense is something we all have, or at least have the potential to have, if we were paying attention, if we knew what to look for. Do you, do you feel like you're, you ever reach that point where, where you kind of, you don't have to look and think to know what direction you're faced? Yeah, so, uh, most, you know, most times, probably 99% of the time, yeah. You know, because, you know, I mean, the navigation is just based on uh, your natural world. So it's like where the sun rises, where the sun sets, you know, where the stars rise and where they set, you know. And the stars, I just remember looking at the sky as a youngster, and all you just see is like billions of uh, dots of light up there. But now you're looking at a definite map. So, yes, you know, I mean, I kind of see it like that, sure. Back in 1976, after 31 days at sea without maps or a compass, Mao Piailug successfully led the Hokulea more than 2,500 miles from Hawaii to Tahiti. It was a madhouse. Around 17,000 Tahitians, nearly 10% of the entire country's population, came out to greet the canoe when it arrived. This is one of the original crew members in a documentary called Papa Mao, The Wayfinder. Couldn't keep people off. And you know, the people on board were like the, the mayor, the governor, and his wife, and all this family come first. <laughs> you know, it's like all the kids. We couldn't keep the kids off. And everybody's dancing, and you know, uh, it's just, you, you couldn't stop it. In the years after, Hokulea took more trips all over Polynesia, and then longer trips, eventually crossing the entire Pacific Ocean. And each of these voyages taught new crew members how to navigate using only the stars and the swells, the feeling of the ocean. More importantly, it gave these new sailors the confidence to know they could find their way. Mao passed away in 2010, but the Hokulea is still voyaging today. The expert navigators on board are still tackling long, unpredictable crossings. For instance, last winter they set off from Namibia and sailed west towards St. Helena, the tiny, isolated island where Napoleon was exiled. 
Along the way, they found themselves shrouded in a thick fog for three days. When that fog lifted, they discovered they were off course, so they started sailing north, only to see a huge thunderstorm in the distance. Kaleo Wong, an apprentice on the Hokulea, was supposed to be in charge, but Bruce Blankenfeld was there to back him up. And we both, he, we both kind of looked at each other. He goes, I think it's time to tack. I said, I think so. So we tacked, and just hours later, we're going straight at the island. There it is. It was like the most amazing sight. And I remember when we finally got to the island, I, I asked them, like, you know, is, is there always that doubt? He's telling me that it's always there. You just got to learn to put that aside and don't think about that and believe in the teachings of your ancestors um, and trust yourself and the island will be there. And, um, for me, that's what it was like. This is not some kind of mystical skill that you need to be trained from birth by your grandfather to learn, although that can't hurt. Anyone can learn to get their bearings. You just need to pay attention when you're out in the world. Look around yourself. Where are the sun and the stars? What way is the wind blowing? How do the trees grow? Okay, Aubrey. Pop quiz. Which way are we going? This past weekend, I tried again. This time while mountain biking with a friend named Sarah. Oh, jeez. Uh... Well, let's see. I think we're going east. I think we're going north, but I have no idea. Sarah, do you know where we're going? I think we're going southwest. <laughs> oh, man. For the record, we were going almost due west. I guess we're going to have to pay a little more attention if we want to get our sixth sense back. Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, and Logan Shannon, with help from Taylor Quimby, Maureen McMurray, Molly Donahue, and Jimmy Gutierrez. If you're having an impossible time picturing what the heck a sailing canoe might look like, you should head over to OutsideInRadio.org. We've got our own photos there, as well as some from the Polynesian Voyaging Society, and if they don't make you want to quit your job and become a master navigator, I don't know what will. You can also find us on the social medias of all sorts, including, let me just give a quick plug for our Instagram feed, we're posting all of our fun photos of doing stuff outside at Outside In Radio. And don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. We've now got another two that have taken inspiration from, you know, who knows where, and say that Outside In is so hot right now. Huh. Weird. Music this week was from D-Lay, La Venganza de Chitara, and Poddington Bear. And of course, our theme is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. You have arrived.